Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. I remember the reason that I stopped believing in Santa Claus. It was because of one of these. It's a post-it. But you have to understand, I know that many of you who are here, or some of you who are watching us online, you don't remember a time in the world where post-its did not exist. But there was a time when there were no post-its. And so these were fascinating little things because they stick, and then they unstick, and they stick again. And so we had them right away when they became available in the office supply stores, we had them. So this is, this is how I lost my joy in Santa Claus because of one of these things. See, my parents were great, especially my mom. Every year we would have, um, at Christmas time, we had our stockings, and they were the typical red velvety stockings with the white fake fur on them. And every one of us, me and all of my brothers, we all had a stocking and they hung them up by the chimney with care. And, and they were our stockings from where, when we were still very young. So the stocking was only about this big, which was great because every year we would go to bed on Christmas Eve and the stocking was empty. And then we would wake up on Christmas morning, run to the fireplace and our stocking was filled with stuff, little toys, uh, little uh, candy, um, McDonald's gift certificates. It was great. But see, we got older. And toys got bigger. And our stocking stayed the same size. So one year, because they couldn't fit everything into the stocking, we went upstairs, we went to the fireplace, we looked inside the stocking... And there was a post-it. And on the post-it was a little note from Santa that said, your mom and dad are going to get you. And then there was something. There was a Lego, you know, a, uh, something. There was a toy. Because it wouldn't fit in the stocking. And listen, years later, I'm looking back at this, and this is a brilliant solution to the problem. Santa knew that he wanted to put all of this stuff in my stocking, but my stocking was too small. So he wrote a note on a post-it and stuck it in my stocking. And I was so excited. Until Easter came. So it's Easter now. And my mom, she's great. We have, you know, there's four of us, so that is an entire crew of people that are going to go look for Easter eggs. So she has Easter eggs, you know, the little plastic kind that you open up and put something inside. And, and, and she, so there's candy, and, and they're, they're scattered all over the lawn and around the plants. But this year, she's going to do something different. Inside the Easter egg, she was going to put numbers. And the numbers would correspond to prizes, so there was like a Tonka truck, there was a Lego set, there was a, uh, that, that tic-tac-toe game where you throw it and then it, you play tic-tac-toe. This was a brilliant idea because now we're not just going after candy, we can win prizes. So we go out 
and we start looking and we grab the eggs and we're just cracking them open now because who cares about a Hershey's kiss when there's a Tonka truck up for grabs, right? So you're just cracking them. Okay, we go. And I find one and there's a slip of paper in it. Except the slip of paper is a post-it. So I open it up and it says Tonka truck, but it is in Santa's writing. So finally, I put two and two together. There was no Santa Claus. It was my mom the entire time. This made me so sad. Because they were, you know, they were good parents. And they wanted us to grow up and experience that whole excitement of Santa. And because of this little post-it, I stopped believing. Now it gets harder and harder to believe in Santa Claus, right? Kids these days, they don't believe at all. In fact, the movie that we are using as our jumping off point for our message today is entirely about how difficult it is to believe in Santa Claus and how Santa came and there was a whole bunch of people and, and, and uh, they doubted who he was. And so it's, it's hard for us today. I, I found this... this um, uh, story that was written by Wayne Rice, and Wayne Rice writes for middle school and high school, and he wrote this story about Santa, and I love this. Uh, you might not, uh, but I do. It's a story about Santa, and this is what he says. He says, it's truly heartwarming to know that millions of people around the world believe in Santa. Sure, most are under four foot tall, but it's still amazing that so many believe in the big guy in the red suit. Consider the following. Around the globe today live approximately 2 billion children. Santa doesn't visit all of them, of course. Subtracting the number of Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Buddhist children reduces Santa's Christmas Eve workload to 15% of the total, or 378 million. At an average rate of 3.5 children per household, and presuming there at least, is at least one good child in each home, Santa must visit about 108 million homes. Santa has about 31 hours of Christmas to work with, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth. Assuming he travels east to west, this works out to 967.7 visits per second. That means that each household with a good child, Santa has around one one-thousandth of a second to park the sleigh, hop out, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left for him, get back up the chimney, jump into the sleigh, and get on to the next house. For the purpose of our calculations, we will assume that each of these 108 million stops is equally distributed around the earth. We're talking about a trip of three-quarters of a mile between each household, a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting bathroom stops. <laughs> to cover that ground in 31 hours, Santa's sleigh moves at 650 miles per second, 3,000 times the speed of sound. By comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle, the Ulysses Space Probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. And a conventional reindeer can run, at best, 15 miles per hour. The payload of the sleigh adds another interesting element. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, about 2 pounds, the sleigh must carry over 500,000 tons, not counting Santa. 
On land, a conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. In air, even granted that the flying reindeer could pull 10 times the normal amount, the job can't be done with a mere eight or nine of them. Santa would need 360,000 of them. This increases the payload, not counting the weight of the sleigh, another 54,000 tons. 600,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance. This is the best part. This would heat up the reindeer in the same fashion as a spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of reindeer would absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. In short... They would burst into flames almost instantaneously and create deafening sonic booms in their wake. The entire reindeer team would be vaporized in a little less than five thousandth of a second or right about the time Santa reached the fifth house on the trip. Not that it matters since Santa, as a result of accelerating from dead stop to 650 miles per second in one one one-thousandth of a second, would be subjected to centrifugal forces of 17,500 Gs. Santa would be pinned to the back of, of the sleigh by more than 4 million pounds of force, instantly crushing his bones and organs and reducing him to a quivering blob of pink goo. Merry Christmas. It's hard to believe. And the movie is all about it being hard to believe. But in the movie, if you've ever seen it, and if you've never seen it, don't bother with the 1994 remake. The 1947 one is the best that they ever made. And if you see the movie, what you're going to see is at the very climax of the story, evidence is presented, people believed, and lives were changed. It was a Christmas miracle. Everybody loved it. People believed because they were given a reason to believe. A reason to believe something that was hard to accept. And I think that when God worked out this plan for Christmas, this plan for Jesus to come, he certainly must have known that it was going to be hard for us to accept it. It was going to be difficult for us to believe what he was about to do. I mean, come on, the almighty creator of the universe is going to come down here and be one of us that he's going to be born as a helpless baby in a stinky barn in a town in the middle of nowhere, that this is what the creator is going to do. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe. And yet, even today, there are many people who still do not believe. They just don't believe it. And God knew that it was going to be hard for us to believe. And so what he did, knowing that, was that he gave us proof. The first book of what we call today the New Testament was written by a guy named Matthew. Matthew was a friend of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He was somebody that knew Jesus. And Matthew wrote about the entire story of Jesus. And for many people, it's the first thing that we read because it's the first section. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And the first thing that Matthew does is he tells us about Jesus. This is what he says. 
he says this. This is the opening line of his book. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, this is a very significant statement because Matthew is a Jew. Matthew has the entire Jewish history behind him. And so when he says that this is a descendant of David and Abraham, he is saying something significant to people who believed in this Old Testament scriptures. He said, listen, you need to understand that this person, this Jesus that I'm about to tell you about, he is not just anybody. He has some significance. And he starts this way. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And then for the next 10 verses, he goes on talking about the entire lineage of whose father was who, and then whose father was who, and then whose father was who, all the way through until he gets to verse 16. And he says this, Jacob, not the same Jacob from verse 2, but now this is a different guy named Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus who is called the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was going to come to save his people. This is who he was. This is Matthew telling us everything that was going on. This is, in essence, the story of Christmas. But Matthew doesn't stop there. You see, once he tells us that Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah, he goes on and he says this. He says, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, if you've ever read the Christmas story, if you've ever read the book of Matthew, if you grew up in church and you heard this, you probably read that verse and just skimmed right over it. Or you, you saw it and you thought, oh, that's neat. But there's a significant reason that Matthew put that in there. There is a reason that Matthew put this, this statement, right after telling about the story of the birth of Jesus. You see, because Matthew knew something that you and I, maybe we gloss over and we don't really get. Because in that statement, Matthew is saying, listen, God gave us evidence of who Jesus was. And the evidence is in that one statement. All of the evidence is there. Now, think about it. Here's Matthew. And Jesus is, he's, he's, he's been with, with Jesus for the entire time of Jesus' ministry here. He was with him all the way up until his death. And, and Matthew went around and he, he talked to people. He told people about who Jesus was. And as Matthew was coming to the end of his years, he stopped to write the story of Jesus. He stopped to write everything that he knew about who Jesus was. And so I can just imagine him at his house. He's sitting down. He's got the fire going so there's a glow so that he can read and he can write. The wind is outside and it's humming and you, you can kind of hear it. And he's pouring through the Hebrew scriptures. And he's reading this and he's reading that and he's writing things down. And all of a sudden, this excitement comes on his face because he's discovered something. He's discovered that there is a pattern in Jesus' lineage. There's a pattern. It's like a puzzle that was solved. So he gets up, he runs into the living room where his wife is there sitting on the couch, scrolling through face scroll. 
See, I, I was wondering if anybody would get that, right? There's no books yet. It's face scroll. So she's sitting there and Matthew says, Hannah, listen, you got to get this. I figured something out. And he looks at it and he says, listen, and he's showing her and he's got all of the names and he shows her all of the calculations. He found a pattern and he was excited about it. In 1983, I got my first Rubik's cube. All right. I got my first Rubik's cube in 1983. And I remember getting it every, but it was all over the place, right? They had Rubik's Cube shoes and Rubik's Cube shirts, and it was just a huge craze. Well, I got my Rubik's Cube, and it was great. And I, the first time that I solved it, I figured out that you could push it apart and then reassemble the pieces, and it would be solved. <laughs> but later on that year, I found a pamphlet, a little book, that gave you the five or six moves that you need in order to solve the entire thing. Because that's really all it is. There's five or six sequence of moves that if you know them, you can solve the Rubik's Cube. And so I figured it out, and I, I, I looked, and I, I moved, and I looked, and I moved. And then all of a sudden, the last turn came into place, and I had solved it without peeling off the stickers, without taking it apart. And when I solved it, I was so excited. I wanted to show everybody. Nobody cared, but I wanted to tell everybody about it because there's something happens inside us when we solve a puzzle and we we just want to tell people about it. And that's what happened to Matthew. He found the pattern. He said, wait a second, listen to this, because after I tell you, this is all of the people who Jesus is related to. This is how we can trace Jesus from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. He says, listen, think about this. It's 14 generations from Abraham to David. It's 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. It's 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. See, what Matthew saw was that Jesus' birth wasn't a random event. It wasn't something that just came out of nowhere. What he saw was that from the very beginning... In between every major point in the history of God's people, in the history of Israel, God was weaving this pattern together so that there would be no mistake that we would know that when Jesus showed up, he was the one. I have a a few friends who are Jewish rabbis. And if you talk to a Jewish rabbi, what they will tell you is, is that when you read Scripture... That it's all in a pattern. That the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, or the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture, they just keep repeating all throughout. And people who have studied the New Testament will tell you the same thing. They will tell you that there's a pattern and that it repeats. And if you, if you start to look at it, you can see that pattern. Now, I, I'm a big fan of John Grisham. John Grisham is an author, and he, he writes... He writes a lot of things these days, but he started out writing books about attorneys. That that was where he he started. And I loved his very first book, and I followed it, and I think I've read almost all of his books. And some of them they've even made into movies, but don't bother watching the movies because the books are great. But here's one thing that, that I realized about his books. As you can see with books of any author, once you start reading them enough, you start to see a pattern in their writing. And then after a while, because you see the pattern, you can almost predict what's going to happen. We do this with television shows all the time. If, there's ever, if you've ever had a television show that you love, 
you know that after the fourth or fifth season, you can write the dialogue yourself because it all just keeps coming the same way. This is what Matthew's talking about. See, he said there's a pattern. And in most cases, when we see a pattern that's going through, we see that the pattern comes because there's only one author. And yet when we look at the Bible that was written by a, a number of different people over a span of hundreds of years, we can still see that there is a pattern all throughout the entire book. Peter, who was uh, also one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote a letter, and in that letter he was talking about how we can believe God's word and the reason that we can believe God's word. And, And in that letter he says this, He says, above all, and he's talking to the people now, the people, some of them who were asking, how do we know for sure that the scriptures that you're talking about actually came from God? And so Peter writes this, he says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. This is what he's saying. He's saying when you read through the scriptures and what Peter is referring to as the scriptures here is what we today call the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. He says when you read through that and you read about these things that are prophesied, when you read about these things where where angels come or when God says that this is going to happen and this is going to happen and that is going to happen. When you read that, you have to realize that that is not coming out of somebody's imagination. It's not coming out of somebody's head. It's not something that they just made up. Well, if it's not, then where does it come from? He goes on and he says this. He said, no, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there was something inside them. And and Christians believe that that was God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit, that there was something moving inside them. And as they wrote... As they wrote with their own voice and their own sound and and how they perceived it, they wrote with God's words. And so when you read what Moses wrote, and when you read what Daniel wrote, and when you read what Isaiah wrote, it wasn't really their words. It was words that came from God that went and moved in and through them through the Holy Spirit. And so why did God bother with all of this? Why did God bother to do all of these things? Why did God bother to set up this pattern? Because he knew that you and I would have trouble believing. And so he had to give us evidence. He had to give us proof. In other words, we had to get a confirmation of what was happening from a higher authority. And that's how our movie closes out. That's how our movie says, hey, this is who Santa is. This is a, a clip from the climax of Miracle on 34th Street. I understand the post office receives thousands of these letters every year. I have further exhibits, Your Honor, but I hesitate to produce them. Oh, I'm sure we'll be very happy to see them. Uh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, produce them, Mr. Gailey. Uh, put them here on my desk. <laughs> but, Your Honor, Put I... them here on the desk. Put them. Yes, Your Honor.
Your Honor, every one of these letters is addressed to Santa Claus. The post office has delivered them. Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. Uh, since the United States government declares this man to be Santa Claus, this court will not dispute it. Case dismissed. Thank you so much, Your Honor, and a very Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Mr. Kringle, and the same to you. Thank you. The post office, a branch of the federal government, said that he is Santa, so he must be Santa. You see, what he was saying, what his, his attorney was arguing for him was that there is a higher authority who made the claim that this is the guy, and so we have to accept it. And that is what Matthew was doing. That is what Matthew was saying in the beginning. That's why we look at this and sometimes it's the throwaway to us. When we think of the story of Christmas, we want to look in another book where it talks about the baby and the manger and the shepherds and all of those fancy things that we see at Christmas time. But this is the proof of Jesus. Because it is in that story, it is in, Ma in, in Matthew's going through the lineage that we see that when starting with Abraham and going to Judah and going to David and to Solomon over and over again and again, God would go into this one line, into this one family, and he would say, the Messiah is coming through you. The Messiah is coming through you. The Messiah is coming through you over and over and over again throughout history. The Messiah was coming through you. And it was so important that not only Matthew, but also Luke, another writer from the New Testament, put in this statement, this clarification of Jesus' lineage and the fact that it was 14 generations in between each of these significant pieces of history of the Jewish people. See, this is important because throughout history, there have been great religious teachers. We have seen in history religious teachers that have come up. There, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, others. And when they were here, they said powerful things to the people and they started great movements that grew because of people wanting to listen to their teachings and to follow their teachings. And today there are many people who make the same argument about Jesus. They say that he was just a great religious teacher. But he wasn't really God. And so this is important because what Matthew is trying to confirm for us is that in this pattern of Jesus's ancestry, that we have confirmation that from years and years, hundreds of years before, the predictions were made that this one person was going to come through the entire line and that Jesus isn't just another great religious leader. 500 years before Jesus was born, a man named Buddha showed up. He started a religion that came to be known as Buddhism, and many people followed him and tried to live by his teachings. 
But before he was born, nobody ever said, hey, there's going to be this guy that's going to come and he's going to belong to this family and he's going to come from this family and that's going to be the proof that he is who he says he is. About 500 years after Jesus was born, a man named Muhammad showed up. He started a religion that came to be known as Islam. And many people followed him and tried to live by his teachings. But before he was born, no one said, hey, one day someone is going to come along and he's going to come from this family and he's going to go through that family. And when you look at his ancestry, that's how you are going to know who he is. So when Jesus showed up, he didn't just show up and go, hey, I'm here and I've got all these great things to say. No, long before Jesus was born, God would over and over and over again say to Abraham, would say to David, would say to Solomon and to many, many people over and over that the one who will save mankind is going to come through you. And he did. For a person to fulfill eight of the prophecies about Jesus, the odds of one person fulfilling all eight of those prophecies is one in one quintillion. I had to look that up. It's million, billion, trillion, quintillion. For someone to fulfill 48 of the prophecies about, of Jesus, the odds are one and 157 zeros. That's the odds of one person fulfilling 48 of the prophecies about Jesus. There were over 300 prophecies of Jesus coming. And he fulfilled every single one of them. And that's how we can know beyond a shadow of the doubt that he is who he said he was. You know, from the time that we hear about about Jesus's birth, where, 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 where it's recorded in the book of Matthew and, and in the book of Luke. From the time that happened, and you go back in time to the last time that we hear anything about God, it was about 400 years. From, from the writer of the very last book of the Old Testament until the time Jesus shows up was about 400 years. And when those people were writing it, they were telling everybody that a Messiah was going to come to save them. And they didn't have books back then, and you couldn't look up things online back then. So it was just what one generation would tell the next generation. For 400 years, no one had come. People had told their children, who told their children, who told their children, who told their children. And no one had come. And people were starting to lose hope. They were starting to lose hope that what they had been promised, what they had been told from someone who had been told, from someone who had been told over and on and on, that God would send somebody to save them. They didn't have any hope. And so when Jesus came, he didn't just bring the hope. Jesus was the hope. And so as we start out this Christmas season, and we're just getting started, right? We're on day one. And, and there's going to be shopping, and there's going to be parties, and there's going to be ugly Christmas sweaters. 
And you're going to see Santa. You're going to see Rudolph. You're going to see the Grinch and Frosty. You're going to see Charlie Brown talking. And you're going to see Kevin McAllister, Home Alone. And you're going to see Buddy the Elf. And you're going to see all these great little stories that that some of us, many of us, have grown up hearing our entire lives that are part of the Christmas experience, part of the thing that brings us so, so much joy at this time of the year. But listen, our hope is not in a fairy tale. Our hope is in something that happened in history. Our hope is in someone who showed up in history. And on that very first Christmas, Jesus came as the hope for the world. He brought hope. He was the hope for the world. And if you will allow him, even in the busyness of the Christmas season, if you will allow him, that same Jesus who came 2,000 years ago can come into your life today and be the hope in your world. In your world. It is a story that started thousands of years before the first Christmas. It is a story that has continued thousands of years after the first Christmas. And Christmas is a reminder that Jesus is the hope of your world. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.